Hello, and welcome to Slush, a publishing podcast. I'm your host, Eric Harden, and on this week's episode, we're going to do a really fun deep dive into a publisher's design department. But before I get into the introduction for this week's guest, I do want to make a quick housekeeping announcement about the podcast. So if you follow Slush on Twitter, you've probably already seen the tweets, but I have been having trouble finding people to guest on the podcast, primarily because I'm trying to have as broad a representation of the industry as possible. And because I am relatively new in my career, I just don't have a very robust network. And so I don't really know anyone on the adult side of publishing, for instance, and I am having a hard time reaching out to and finding good people to talk to. So with that said, I'm going to continue obviously working on finding good connections and using every resource that I have available to me. But I think I'm going to need to take a break from the podcast, at least for a couple of weeks, just because there's really, truly no way that I can get an episode out every week with the current rate of guests that I'm getting from other companies. When it was just me getting people that I work with or that I previously worked with, it was so much easier because I had a personal relationship with them and I could much more easily reach out to them and ask them if they'd be interested in guesting. But now when I'm cold emailing people who don't know me, it's a much more involved process, which I mean, makes sense, of course. But it's taking longer than I would hope it would. So I need to, I think, probably two or three weeks take off to line up as many guests as possible and to hopefully build a bit of a backlog of episodes so that in the future I won't have to take breaks like this. I'll be able to just have episodes already prepared that I can just post and then continue working on new episodes. That's the goal. But as of right now, that is not the reality. So yes, if you notice that an episode isn't posted on Monday, this is probably why. Check Slush's Twitter account at SlushPod and you'll have the most recent updates. I'll be tweeting there just to let people know like what's happening. I do want to be very transparent because, you know, this is an educational podcast. And so I'm hoping that on the one hand, I wish that it would come out every week. I wish it was a much more dependable podcast, but I'm a full-time employee and I have a social life and I, I can't dedicate all of my time to this podcast as much as I would like to. So yeah, this is just a reality of life. And so I hope you understand. I hope this doesn't <laughs> turn you off of the podcast at all. Not that I had a huge following or listenership, but I hope this doesn't turn anyone away, but it's just necessary for me to be a human and also continue making this podcast. So I hope I hope you understand that I'm doing my best and I will be back with episodes as soon as I possibly can be. But yeah, that is the housekeeping update. Apologies for rambling. And so now on a much happier note, please give a warm welcome to Cassie Gonzalez. She is a designer with Penguin Random House and she in addition to being just a very cool, kind person who I personally really enjoy, she's also just such a phenomenal designer. Her covers are some of the most beautiful in the industry, in my opinion. I'm a little biased because I like her as a person as well, but she just, I mean, the proof is in the covers. Truly, I'll just list off a few gorgeous covers that you should look into because they are pieces of art. The Awakening of Malcolm X by Ilyasa Shabazz and Tiffany D. Jackson, stunning cover. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Gorgeous. May the Best Man Win by Z.R. Eller. The Comeback by E.L. Shen, which we talk about in the episode. Lore Olympus by Rachel Smith. I'm not exactly sure how Rachel pronounces that, which is just a number one, I think number one bestseller maybe, or very close to that. Sasha Masha by Agnes Berinsky. Trader by Amanda Macrina. There's just so many I'm scrolling through her website right now, which is Cassandra Gonzalez 
Casandragons.com, C-A-S-A-N-D-R-A-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S. Highly recommend that you go to her website and take a look at all of these stunning covers that she's designed because they are truly just gorgeous. And I don't understand where in her brain these live, but I am so, so envious and so in awe of her work. And I'm so grateful that she took the time out of her schedule to come talk to me about working in design, because I think this is a really, really great episode for people who are interested in working in the design department or who want to learn more about the work that design does just generally. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Cassie Gonzalez. Thank you so much, Cassie, for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to me about working in design. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm already a big fan of the podcast. Oh my God, you're too nice. (laughs) Let's jump right in. First question, how did you get to this point in your career? Basically, give us a full rundown of your resume. Sure. So I, well, first starting from the very beginning, in high school, I did yearbook and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fun. I want to do yearbook forever. Maybe I'll be a graphic designer. And so I knew that I wanted to move to New York because I'm from Houston and a lot of people go up north for school, for the school that I was in. So I went to Pratt Institute for graphic design for four years. So I moved to New York when I was 18 and in the graphic design, well, it's technically called communications design with a graphic design focus. And in the graphic design program, a lot of people do branding and logos and stuff like that. But I was never very good at that. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to do something different than a lot of what my classmates were doing. And I found out about book design just through some professors and some other older upperclassmen who had had internships. And I was like, oh, book design. That's so cool because I had always loved reading. So when junior year, after junior year is when a lot of people start getting serious internships. So I applied to HarperCollins and I ended up getting an internship in their ad promo department, which basically ad promo design is... I wouldn't, maybe it's kind of like structured similarly to the design departments, but basically you get assignments to make graphics, usually for social media, like Goodreads, Instagram, whatever. And you take the covers that already exist, you download the files, and then most of the time you you like pick up the design elements from the covers. So actually, when I was interning, I would take a lot of files from my then future boss, Aurora Parler Greco. I'll shout her out, best boss. <laughs> and I would look at the files and I'd be like, designed by Aurora. Like, wait, that's so cool. I could do design. I could like be designing the covers. I don't have to make this. Not the, the social media graphics. Also a cool job. But I was like, wait, that's so cool. So then after my internship with Harper, which that program was amazing, I met actually one of my now, I guess, lifelong best friends in that program we're still really good friends she's an editor I'll talk about her later (laughs) and so after I was at the Harper internship program I applied for two more internships while I was a senior in college and that was what the first semester was at St. Martin's Press at Macmillan and the second semester was at Berkeley Putnam and the Penguin side of Penguin Random House and both those internships were amazing also and I learned so much I really wanted to get a job with either of the departments after college but neither of them had available openings and the design world is pretty small so if there's something available it's not like they can just create a job for you so I was out of luck there and I ended up getting a job somewhere that I hadn't interned at which was Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I was there for about a year in the licensing department, and then I moved over to FSG and Roaring Book Press at Macmillan Children's, where I was for two and a half, a little over two and a half years. And then after two and a half years, I was poached by Random House Adults. So I moved for, I was about four years in kids, and I moved over to adult, and now that's where I work in Random House Adult. 
Amazing. Such a full career already. It's so great. I know. People <laughs> will say actually like, oh, you like have worked so many places already. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I had three internships. That's what you're supposed to do. But also just like, that's the luck of the draw. You know, you got to move around sometimes if you want to make higher salaries and get the projects you want to get. So it just happens. Yeah, definitely. Okay. First real question or no, sorry, this isn't a real question. This is a fun question. What are some of your favorite projects or titles that you've worked on so far in your career? Okay, so here now we'll go back to my bestie that I mentioned before, Elizabeth Lee. She's also, she's an editor right now at Penguin Workshop. Uh, we also worked together at Macmillan for the years that I was at Macmillan. And we met together when we were little baby interns at Harper. But she's also an author, a really good one. And I had the privilege of designing her cover and the interior of her first book, The Comeback. So that's The Comeback by Yel Shen. That's her author name. And it was just really special to me to get to work on that project together because we have come up together basically in the industry. And I thought it was really beautiful. I worked with an illustrator to design the cover and it was just really special to have that like extra special connection with the work even though most of my books we get to usually request what we want to work on so a lot of times I do have a personal connection to the book just because it's something that I'm interested in or it has to do with things of my background or things like that so actually a lot of the books I mean I love them I love most of them and it's also really special to me when the when the authors you know say thank you or reach out and get to know you and you you feel like you get to know them a little bit through their work so I really love that part of my job yeah that's so beautiful for the listeners, I actually know Cassie decently well. We used to be co-workers. And so when I asked this question, I was thinking, of course, she's going to mention the comeback because hello. But then also, I'm surprised you didn't talk about All Boys Aren't Blue. All Boys Aren't Blue and Laura Olympus, which just oh, yeah. has exploded. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so I have two books that are now bestsellers, which is really exciting because I worked in publishing for about, actually, this is my sixth year because I had a full year of internships before five years of actual being a professional. And I, I didn't have a bestseller for those five years. And like, not that it's always a mark. Obviously, it's not a mark of how good your book is or, you know, how much care we put into it. But it was really special to get those bestsellers. And actually, this is a funny little aside, which is that I recommended my boyfriend to do an authenticity read for a book for someone at Macmillan. And that book hit the bestseller list, the one book that he worked on. So he's always like, uh, I had a bestseller where you did. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so freaking not fair. <laughs> what book was it? Am I allowed to say? You might have to. I don't know. I don't see why you can't. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was Sparkella, which is Tanning Tatum's book. And he's Vietnamese and there's a Vietnamese character. So he did an authenticity read for the Vietnamese character. Is that the first book or the second book? It was the first book. Okay. Yeah. That one's out. So we can talk about that one for sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that might cut out me yeah. asking if it was the first or the second, because I don't know if the second one's been announced yet. But <laughs> Well, I think it was actually, because I think I saw it. But anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was just really funny that he got to the bestseller list on the one book that he ever worked on meanwhile I've worked on what 50 books throughout my career <laughs> maybe even more and it's just like wait definitely more than 50 I've worked on but yeah anyway yeah it's gotta be more than 50 <laughs> yeah actually for all boys aren't blue that was the first time I saw last summer I saw someone reading it in a park and that was the first time I saw one of, someone reading one of my books in public and I got so excited I went over to the poor girl and I was like <laughs> Yeah, anytime I'm in a bookstore and I see one of your covers, whoever I'm with, I'm like, I know that person. I know who designed oh. this. <laughs> it's really fun. Yeah. Okay, moving to a real question now. How would you describe the work that your department does? So the basic, the very bare bones basic thing. Oh, okay. First of all, in adult or maybe even in some kids departments, but not in the kids departments that I worked in. 
in kids, you design the cover and the interior. So you are responsible for the entire package of the book. So that's cover design, hiring illustrators, typesetting the interior, fixing it up and sending the entire book to the production team. For adults, it's just the cover. So right now I only work on covers and jackets. So I am simply responsible for that one piece of paper. Sometimes a little extra, sometimes, you know, like an end paper or like a special thing. But most of the time it's literally just a jacket. But then our titles, we just have a little bit more, I think, now than when I worked in kids because we don't have that extra interior stuff. But basic part of my job is basically I'm given a manuscript and then the editor will give us a brief with ideas, comp titles and comp covers. And then basically you just create an interpretation of that manuscript in cover form. That's the simplest explanation. The truth of the matter is the same way that editorial says that they have 37 million different jobs. They're a therapist, financial manager, administrative assistant. You kind of have to do all those things in design too sometimes. At the job where I'm at now, we do all our own contracts. So sometimes people will ask me contract questions and I'm like, girly, I do not know the answer. And I have to talk to legal. And you know, there's just so many things you don't think of like answering millions of emails, author care. I mean, I don't usually talk to the authors directly. It's through the editor, but still it's a lot of little political things the same way a lot of other departments in publishing is. You have to do a lot of different jobs other than just getting to do the creative thing. But the cool thing about design is that your role does not change drastically from when you are a junior designer to when you're an art director. You're kind of just going to be doing, I mean, of course, there are different responsibilities you get to have as you're managing someone or as you're, you know, getting a little more advanced in your career. But at the end of the day, it's a very similar job. You're designing mechanicals, you're designing covers, you get the book, you read it, and then you do it. So I do like that aspect of the job where once you've got the hang of it, you're kind of like, okay, it's going to be this way and it's just going to be this way. <laughs> so I like that. Yeah, that's so great. It's like dependable in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, a couple of questions came up while you were talking, and so I jotted them down. I know less about design than I know about editorial and stuff, so I'll probably have more questions just that I'm curious about than I have in other interviews. So first, I wanted to ask, do you miss working on interiors, like the design for the interior? No. no. <laughs> no. I think it's fun to feel like you have ownership of the whole project, but at the same time, it's such a different way of designing because you're designing for legibility. You're designing for, yeah, legibility, readability, and like, I feel like it's a totally separate job. Like at other places where I work now, we, they have an entire interiors department and like that's what they specialize in. And sometimes it can be hard to switch your brain from cover design, you're making it big, you're making it splashy. It's basically a marketing asset. Essentially, it's the best marketing asset that a book has most of the time is its cover. And then switching from something to a totally different area of design, which is like you're trying to, in kids, you're trying to figure out the typeface size in relation to the age of the reader and the structure of the letters in relation to the age of the reader because younger kids don't know, you know, the different ways that A looks. They only know A this way, you know? So it's just a lot of different things to think about. And I absolutely do not miss it, no. <laughs> I've always wondered that because it seems like most people that get into cover design or in the design department in general are like very visual people. And like interior design is not, I mean, it is obviously visual, but it's not the same. Like it's not art visual. It's Yeah. It seems like a completely different thing. <laughs> it totally is. I mean, like I said, yeah, it's just, it's nice to feel like you've worked like All Boys Aren't Blue, I designed the interior. I did handwritten lettering for every single chapter title, and there's like 25. And I set all the photographs in it. So like, I feel really proud of that book because I know that I put every single thought behind that. The way that book looks is mine and the editor's decision. But I just, it's so much easier to not have to do all that anymore. 
But I think it is really cool, like, if I was to, for some reason, which I don't really plan to, but, like, if I were to someday go into cookbook design or something like that, there's a lot that goes into that, and it's really interesting, so. Yeah, that's so interesting. My next question was, I've always wondered this, what is the difference? You said they're kind of not different, but functionally, is there a difference between, like, a regular designer and an art director? Is it just a title, or is there, like, a difference? It depends on the department and the specific person I think it's not as clear-cut as an editorial where it's like now you're senior designer now you're I mean a senior editor now you're whatever like there's clear rungs that you move up I was never an assistant to anybody I was an assistant designer but I wasn't assigned to be someone's assistant if that makes sense so it's kind of just made up our directors a lot of the times will be managing people so that is one. So they are art directing their little underling, their designer, their junior designer. And so the projects that they work on together, that art director will be, they can sometimes have like an art direction credit, like art directed by so-and-so, but designed by me, you know, for example. And then a lot of the times they'll also, you have more of an opportunity to hire out the projects that you want someone else to work on and then have a smaller number for yourself, one or two a season that are books that you design personally. And then I assume, I mean, obviously I'm not there yet, but I assume a lot of, of more like admin stuff. They want you to be more involved in the department and things like that. Yeah. yeah so that like makes... increased responsibilities. Sorry. No, no. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Back to the questions I actually prepared for this. What are some of your favorite and least favorite parts of your job? My favorite part about my job is that I love it <laughs> and I love books and I just most of the days I am getting to do at least one or two things that are really exciting to me. I think I also talked about this before, but getting to work on a new project every time because books are different every time. Every book is different, obviously. So I get to do a lot of fun research about a lot of different topics and that kind of keeps the job from becoming stale to me. And our project turnover is higher than other people because we aren't working on the full book the way an editor or someone is. So I do work on a lot of different projects, which is really exciting to me. I think the community of designers is really great. I've had some super amazing mentors that have helped me in my career and just people that I know I can go to for advice that have been through the same struggles, I guess, that I've been through. And everyone's always so willing to talk to you. I mean, I think that's publishing in general. Obviously, usually we have really nice people working in publishing, but design is so specialized. So a lot of times it really helps with someone who has like done your same job for 20 years and like they know everything. You know, one of my other favorite things is I love seeing videos of authors seeing their books for the first time. Oh my God, it's just the sweetest thing to know that like you've helped this thing come into being, like this thing that authors, I mean, they put their hearts and souls into this and you got to be that person who interpreted it for them and helped them have the physical object. I think it's really special. Actually, sometimes people don't like when authors will be like, my designer did this or like my designer for this book. But like, I, I actually really like it because it's like I did something in service to this book, which is so important to the author's life. And I feel like, you know, that's our role, basically. But sometimes people are like, oh, I don't work for you. I'm not your designer. This has nothing to do with you, <laughs> you know. But personally, I like it because I feel like it's usually said in a complimentary way. Obviously, the authors are very thankful. I guess now I say least least favorite part. Unless you don't have any. <laughs> no, I have some. <laughs> my least favorite part of my job is that a lot of the times as a designer, you feel like you don't have any power. 
we do not have as much of a say. Well, obviously, we don't have any say on what books get acquired. So that can sometimes be frustrating when you're like, I want, I wish I could see more of these kind of books. And the only way you can kind of accomplish that is to make friends with an editor and tell the editor and maybe they'll listen to you. But we don't have any say in what is coming in. And even though we get to choose what projects we want, you choose from this bunch. So that is a little frustrating to me sometimes. And when people, I just talked about how I love when authors make connections with us or say thank you in the acknowledgements or even just send like, even when editors will like forward us the note of the author giving the final approval and be like, wow, love this so much, like so happy. That's amazing. But then (laughs) when you don't, when there's just total disregard for like our jobs and they'll post the cover without you know, saying who the cover designer is or things like that, where it's just, oh, yes, the team did such a good job. You're like, it wasn't, it was me. (laughs) Or I do look in the acknowledgements on that. Not that I, I don't fault authors for this because sometimes they just don't know. You don't know that so many people have put work into this book. But sometimes I'm like, girl, I read your book front to back two times. (laughs) So I don't like that part either. But that's like a petty thing. That's not a flaw of the job (laughs) necessarily. The, The biggest flaw of the job, I think, is feeling We are not consulted, I guess, in the system of publishing and forgotten about quite often, especially in like surveys and things like that. Yeah, I have to say, I have actually talked about this in another episode. One of my dumbest, silliest pet peeves is that not everyone on the team gets thanked and acknowledgements, especially like selfishly, the production editors and the managing editors never get acknowledged. And I'm like, I get it because we're behind the scenes. You probably don't even know we exist. But like, I put a lot of work into this and I'd love a shout out, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it just makes you feel like you're not you're acknowledged like you. And I think most of the time, obviously, when it happens, it's just authors don't know. But it's a really good thing to email your editor ask for a list to everyone who every person who worked on the book and then just stick that in there yeah it seems like I mean I've never written a book don't plan to I don't know but (laughs) it seems like once you have the list you just you don't have to add anything special to it just put the list in there and everyone's going to be so thrilled (laughs) yeah I love seeing my name yeah it's so fun I have a couple books finally coming out that have my name in them and I'm like oh my god amazing okay moving to the next question What traits and or skills do you feel are necessary for a person looking to work in design? This one's kind of a funny question because, yes, ideally, probably they want you to have a design major. And most of the time, you're not going to get people coming into design who don't know anything about design. But I would say that the level of education, not level because most people do have a college degree or equivalent is usually what they say. But sort of like some people went to a state college and took a couple of art classes or some people have actual graphic design degrees from a specialized school, which is what I have. But at the end of the day, you learn it's like any other department, which is that you learn so much on the job that you can be wildly behind quote that's in quotes behind in certain areas and just that doesn't matter if you're coming in. Everybody sort of evens out because most departments will have specialized training for how to do things. Like when I, for example, when I started working in kids, I did not know how to typeset an entire manuscript and like typeset a book properly. And they have people that will train you on how to do that. So I think the most important thing when you're coming in is to have sort of like our jobs are basically the ability to synthesize a huge bunch of information and clearly explain your thought processes and then create something. And that's kind of like, I think what has helped me the most is having good reading comprehension, basically, like to be able to read a lot of information and then output something that is based on that information. I think is the the number one design skill. Yeah, I never would have thought that, but that makes so much sense. 
Another question that just came up that I've always wondered, not whether it exists, because I know that designers, for the most part, at least I think, have to provide a portfolio when they're applying. But I always found that so interesting because that's not a thing, obviously, for any other department, because no one else needs prior experience. I mean, you need, you know, to be hired as a person with a job, you should have prior experience in like customer service or retail or something. But most people don't have, here's an example of all of the work that I've done that directly relates to this role. That's not a thing for every other department. So I'm just always interested to hear from designers how that feels. And like, is that difficult? Is that annoying? I imagine it is, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. It is. I mean, if you're a designer, there's no job that's not going to ask you for a portfolio. So I think for us, it's very normal. I will say I get questions. I mean, I get emails all the time from students or like younger people who are trying to get into book design and they're like asking for advice. The number one thing I always tell people because this really helped me when I was getting jobs was chances are if you're applying for a junior designer position or an assistant position, you obviously do not have any book covers because you have never worked in publishing. And so how are you going to have book covers? What I tell people to do is make fake book covers. So my senior thesis at school, everybody else was doing like really intense branding projects. And I was like, I'm just going to make some book covers. And that's what I did. So I basically would create covers for books that I was currently reading because then it showed my taste, the kind of books that I was interested in. And it wasn't, I tell people all the time, please do not show me a cover for The Great Gatsby in your portfolio. Like, I don't want to see it. I've seen it seven million times. Any like fairy tale or super popular novel reimagined, that doesn't really show, I mean, it can show your creativity, but it doesn't really show like your interests necessarily. And that's also, you know, a part of which wherever you're going to end up is hopefully you're going to be at least slightly interested in the books. So I always tell people create fake covers for the books that you like to read and put those in your portfolio. And most student work is not real anyway. So it doesn't matter if it's not a real book cover. Yeah. And I'd also, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume also the great thing about doing more contemporary books is it shows that you're like aware of the market and you're not stuck in college readings that were written 50 years ago. Like you're aware of the current market. You're aware of what's publishing now, which is always an asset in this industry. Exactly. And like, yeah, basically that's a good rule of thumb. If you were required to read it in college or in high school, do not put it in your portfolio. Try and get things that are, yeah, interesting. And then sometimes like if you have something in your portfolio and you don't even know that art director who's interviewing you might be like, oh, actually my friend did that cover and I would love to send her this to like show her, you know, so you never know what kind of connections are going to be made because it's such a small industry. Yeah, definitely. Okay, next question. And this is the big question of the episode. So take as much time or as little time as you want to answer it. But can you walk us through the standard work that you do in your role for an individual book from start to quote unquote finish? Yes, that is going to be a very in-depth <laughs> question. And I also want to remember something right talking about before we started recording, which was some things that other departments should maybe know about design or you should know about design if you're coming into publishing, but you have no interest in being a designer. So I'm just putting that in my mind to remember at the end. Okay, so start to finish about a year or maybe a little bit more sometimes in kids or a little bit less if it's a craft project, but just say a year before publication of the book, you will receive a manuscript and a brief. The brief comes from the editor and it will say things like character description, plot, setting, a summary of the book, things like how well they hope the book will do, perhaps what their expectations are. And you get that from like the numbers and other things that the editors do in their launch presentations. And then that gets assigned to me. And usually, actually, I might want to check how many I get at once. But like 
per season, maybe I'll have six to 10 books assigned to me. So I will get the assignment of six to 10 books at once. And then over the next couple of weeks or maybe a month or two, I do sketches for those covers. Now, some covers are marked as priority titles, which means the editors have flagged them as we think this one is going to get a lot of pre-order, so we want it to come early, or it's an established author who knows that they need to have the cover to do their promotions in whatever May. So some say maybe like four out of the 10 will be priority titles, and you have to basically work on those first. But the hard thing is, is that they all come at once. So sometimes you're like, oh my God, I have 27 different priority titles and I have to work on everything at the same time. So those come, you work on sketches. So sketches in children's, a lot of the times what happens is that we will hire an artist. So the first round sort of is compiling artist samples from different corners of the internet, essentially, or people that you know, or people you want to work with. And then we present those to the editor and the publishing team and decide who to hire for the cover to do the illustration on the cover. Then we reach out to that person. They have a couple weeks to do the sketches. We get the sketches and we present them as like a first round. Now, in adult, it's very different. Unless you're working on licensed titles like Laura Olympus, which I do work on some licensed titles with Del Rey is the imprint that I work with. Oh, actually, they just changed it. It's Random House Worlds. I actually will have to confirm that. Sorry. (laughs) Because <laughs> they literally just changed it two weeks ago. Okay, so sometimes I work on licensed titles, in which case it's very similar to kids, which is we choose an artist. We work on that. I The department that I work in does a lot of Star Wars titles. So it's sometimes they're hiring different people who like do fan art. And then they're like, oh my God, I get to work on like real Star Wars stuff. Or like right now I'm working on a Netflix tie-in, which is really cool. But for most of my projects, we kind of almost skip the sketch phase if I'm doing the design And everything looks like it could be a cover already. It looks final. And we're presenting maybe five to ten different options of covers that for a non-designer or an editor or someone else, you would look at them and you would be like, oh, this could totally be the cover. So it's a very different way of working from different jobs to different jobs. So we present the first round and then the editor will look over them in a cover meeting, usually with a couple of other editors involved and the creative director or like the publisher. In children's, at least in my experience, it was a lot more people. The sales team is there and the marketing team is there and we we don't have that in in my current job. So everyone will kind of give their opinion and then we'll go back and make changes based on their suggestions or the author's suggestions. And then basically you do like, hopefully you only do two or three rounds, but sometimes it's like, oh my God, I'm on the seventh time of bringing this to the cover reading. That's only like bad cases or something happened. But let's say maybe like two to four rounds of bringing it to the cover meeting. So presenting it basically to the editor and then hopefully it will get approved. So then you're sort of waiting. So you have your approved cover that you just spent maybe two to three months designing. And then you wait (laughs) and then like four or five, six months on the line, then you design the jacket. So I personally... Once you've designed the jacket and it's getting ready to go to production, that's the slightly less fun part for me. It's much more technical. You're proofing it, you're getting press proof, Epson's, you're releasing it to the printer, and that's when you work really closely with production. And Man Ed, obviously, for doing the routes for the jacket and getting the copy notes on everything and fixing all that up. And that takes maybe like another month or two, and then you're releasing it to production. 
So to sum up, you get the manuscript, you design the cover, you bring it to cover meeting like a couple times, you wait for a little bit, a couple of months for the schedule to move along, then you create the jacket, and then you wrap the jacket, and then you release it to production. And then it's not your problem anymore. It's production's a problem. <laughs> now I will talk about some common like misconceptions of the job, I think, from other... Oh, sorry. Before you do, I had a couple things. Number one, I just wanted to say, you went through that pretty quickly, but this is months and months and months of your life. So yes. I just want to make it clear for the listener that it can be summed up somewhat quickly, but this is so much work. And that's the amount of work you're doing for each of your 10, however many titles per season. And then there's always a different season coming up. So it's just the churn of the job is always ever present. Like you're never getting a break. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I also wanted to ask, because this is something that I've heard you specifically talk about previously, because you are a speed reader, like certifiably. And so you read all of your books cover to cover. But I've heard that a lot of designers just can't do that. So I'm interested to hear how different you are compared to other designers and your experience, because it seems like you're a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I, I don't sometimes I talk about it and sometimes don't because it's a little braggy You're like oh I'm a speed reader but I actually am the speed that I read is about two times as fast as a regular person reads and that is not a skill that I learned because I wanted to go into publishing that is simply something that I was born with we grew up in Texas Texas public school system like we had to do these reading tests and stuff like that and they would literally test our speed and like from sixth grade I was reading at a level that was much much above everybody else and was just a really fast reader so people ask sometimes oh how do I get faster at reading and I'm like unfortunately I regret to inform you that that is simply something I was born with I wish I could say I think I do find that I read faster printed materials versus on screen because your eye has less strain but in general that is just a really special skill that I'm very, very thankful that I have. I think it's like, for me, it's like having perfect pitch because it's just when a singer has that, it's like, oh, wow, good for you. So I'm really grateful for it. So I do read every manuscript, most, not all. Like if I'm hiring an illustrator, sometimes I won't read the whole thing. I'm like, that's your problem. But I do read most of the manuscripts that I get from front to back. Most people do not, and they'll get, they'll sometimes read the first five, 10 chapters or the first 50 pages, get a feel for the tone, and then the editor will kind of fill in the blanks. Now, I recently thought to myself, is it really more impressive that I have to read the whole book in order to get to a good cover versus so many other designers? They can do my job the same way, probably just as good, if not better, all the other great designers out there. And they don't have to put in that effort to read the whole book. <laughs> like, even though I'm, I'm a speed reader, I do spend a lot of hours reading outside of work, especially when we get that influx of new titles, six to 10 books at once, where I literally just have six different books on my Kindle. And I feel like I can't read my little book for book club because I'm too preoccupied with my manuscript. So is it really more impressive that I'm reading the whole book? At the end of the day, no, because there are so many other talented designers out there who can get the same result as me, but don't have to read the whole thing. <laughs> but I do think a lot of times when I connect with authors, it is really special for them to know that someone really cared about their book and read the entire thing, sometimes more than once. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a funny, I never thought of it that way. That's so funny. I do still think it's very impressive that you read every book because I don't certainly don't read every book I work on. And I'm like, actually, part of my job is reading and correcting the text of the book. <laughs> so the fact that I'm not reading the whole book is sometimes I'm like, wow, this should be concerning, but it's just how it's done. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in awe of you still. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's not even something that I'm, you know, it's just a skill that I have. Unfortunately, it's not something that I work for. It's just a cool thing that I can do. <laughs> 
I did get a perfect score on ACT reading, you know, like whatever. (laughs) I always joke if I was actually good at writing, because actually a lot of people in my family are writers. My aunt and uncle are both professors. My mom is a freelance writer and was a teacher. My grandpa writes poetry. Like I have a lot of writers in my family. And unfortunately, I was just simply not blessed with that skill. Like I'm good at, you know, reading and synthesizing, like I said before, but I'm really not a beautifully talented writer. But it's actually a shame because I feel like I would have made a pretty good editor if I had that skill of being able to write. (laughs) Yeah, I remember you mentioning during a meeting with some junior people at Macmillan when you worked there and you mentioned being a speed reader and all the editors were so jealous because they do so much reading constantly. It would be a wonderful skill for them to have for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, when I was younger and then like earlier versions of my job, I would actually read slush pile things for editors because I could just power through me. Like I can read a YA manuscript in like an hour and a half. And and they would just give me and be like, give me your general thoughts with the thought of they were already probably going to pass on these things. But if I like found anything special to let them know, basically. So basically you have a superpower. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, I do want to go back to though, you wanted to talk about what other people going into other departments might need to know about design. So I don't want to lose that. Okay, so some, I would say, misconceptions about the job. Something that comes up a lot that I feel like editors don't really understand about our job. We work most closely with editors, production, and managing editorial. Usually the managing editorial person assigned to the jacket will release it, quote unquote. Like the jacket, once it's been approved by everybody, there are no mistakes on it. It is ready to go. And at that point, it becomes the designer's job to send it to production. Now, within that designer sends it to production, there are so many things that we have to do to get it ready to be printed that I feel like people just don't understand what that is. I won't go into all the technical details, but, you know, if there are effects, we have to set up the effects plates. We have to make sure that everything lines up correctly. We have to pre-flight, which is basically we have to check that everything is going to be printed properly, that all of the colors, you know, the colors that you see on screen are not the same colors that you're going to see on the jacket. So we have to manage our colors to make sure that they come out the best that they can for the jacket. We have to make proofs either on printers that are in-house called Epsons usually, or we have to send it out for proofs. And that whole process, all those little technical things can take a day if you're rushed, which we don't really like to do that. Or what you're supposed to have is like a full week to be able to do that. Now, of course, we don't always get that full week. But I think that in a lot of people's minds, it's like, okay, jacket is released, time to post the files. Oh, we also have to like name our files in a special way and put them in a specific place. And like, there's just all these little technically details that like you, A, you don't know those things before you become a designer. So you're like, wait, what the heck? I have to do all these weird little things. And B, editorial just like does not know about that part of the job because it does not involve them at all versus all the other parts of our job do involve editorial and every other thing. So I feel like that is a really common misconception where it's like, okay, jacket is released. Jacket will now be at the printer and it will be printed. But actually, there's so much work that goes into the design side. And to be honest, that is my least favorite part because it's very boring. (laughs) Managing all those little pieces. But then, like I said, then it goes to production and the production does their magical way with things. Yeah, that's so good to hear because I realized I know intrinsically that it is a lot of work, but I didn't know what kind of work it was because honestly, I thought it was just like a save as situation. (laughs) Oh, it's fully not. I wish that it was, but there are so many details. I mean, like I've gotten a lot quicker at it as I've, you know, gone through the years, but it's definitely not 
simply a save as thing. You have to, okay, one of the coolest things that I like explaining to people is ink density. So basically, if you have too many dark inks, mostly black, but like sometimes with dark browns or things like that, if you have too much ink density, when you print a jacket, the ink will be so thick that it will not have time to dry before the next jacket is shot out of the printer and on top of it. And then they'll stick together or the ink will bleed through or like it just will not be a good time. So one of our jobs that we have to do when we're pre-flighting a jacket to send it to production is to check and make sure that the ink density is not too much. And what happens if you have a piece of art where the ink density, there's too much black in it, is that you have to then go in and color correct and subtract certain colors from the black to like make it a less rich black we call it rich black is the the deepest black and you can't have too much of it otherwise you won't be able to print it properly when the jackets stack up on top of each other at the printer so that's just like one little example of what you're like wow i never thought of that but like that is an unfortunate part of my job that i have to know about those things and deal with them so that it doesn't create a production problem down the line yeah that's also great to know because i deal with ink density all the time in reprints and i've never understood what that meant i just knew that it was an issue that design had to fix and i was like please fix it (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah thank you for sharing this because i mean selfishly i'm gonna be better about asking designers to release things now i'm not gonna be like so you can release it this afternoon, right? No. I mean, we can if it's a fire, if it's an emergency. I've done that plenty of times, obviously, but you want to have at least a few days. And then, of course, what happens if you have like three different things releasing all at once and you're like, oh, God, now I have to figure that out, you know? Yeah, this is so good to know. Thank you. Okay, moving to then. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. There's more to talk about. Sorry. I have one more. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay, I have one more thing that is something I see really often on the author side, which is that, well, I see this mostly on Twitter. People, well, of course, people love to complain on Twitter. Twitter, maybe one might even say it is for complaining. (laughs) So it's not surprising if you see these kind of things on there. But I do see a lot of rhetoric about the author has no say over their cover. So I would say that there are kind of two ways of thinking about this. But first of all, I want to say that it is normally not true that an author has no say over their cover. And I'm saying that as an absolute, like no say. If you as an author are feeling like you have no say over your cover, there's probably something wrong and you should talk to your agent and your editor about that because if you have a cover that you were like 100% unhappy with, no one wants to feel that way. No one wants to say that their cover doesn't represent their book and isn't making them happy when they see it. At the end of the day, that's what an author wants, to be happy when they see their cover. So if you feel that you don't have any say over your cover, you need to bring that up politely to your agent and your editor. But on the other hand, a lot of the times we as designers will see authors micromanaging their cover and saying, oh, we need to change this, we need to change that, we need to change this, we need to change that, and I don't think it's whatever. And I think some authors need to remember, like, at the end of the day, that designers are professionals and experts in what they do, which is design their covers. Same way that I cannot be an author, I cannot be an editor. Authors should not be designing their books, hiring people to design their books. That is the job of the designer as a professional designer. A lot of times authors will be like, oh, I want I want my cover to look like this because this is so popular right now. Or like, this is what I think would be cool. But what people don't remember and what you were mentioning before was that the timelines are so long sometimes that if it's a book that published last year, it was designed two years ago. And if it's a book that we're designing now, it's being published in a year or two years. So there's almost a three to five year timeline of what is popular and what is fresh. And so if an author is micromanaging what font or style or like vibe they want for their cover, it's almost like, well, actually, we have the expertise of what we think is going to be popular in the next three years when we're designing these covers. 
So at a certain point, sometimes authors need to take a step back and remember that there are so many different pieces that go into this book. And when a cover has been approved, it has gone through the sales team, the marketing team, the editor. Everyone has sort of come to the agreement that this is going to be the best cover that's going to do the best work for their book. Yes. But I do want to reiterate if authors feel like they don't have any say, especially I do feel this a lot when it comes to like character design. If an author wants to like say a million different little things about the way their character looks, I personally never have a problem with that because I'm like, okay, yeah, obviously we want to make sure that the eye color and the hair color and the clothing is accurate to what the character is. But if it's more about like, oh, we gave you 10 different options and you're not happy with any of them because you want it to be this different way and you sent it to your cousin and your cousin's a designer and your cousin has to say about this, I'm like, please don't involve me in that. Like, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I get that it's a delicate balance, but at the end of the day, I think if you're being published by a big five publisher and a reputable imprint, there is very little chance that you have as an author zero say over what your book is about. And most of the time, editors will ask the author, what are your thoughts about what the cover should be like? And we have that included in our briefs. So even from the very beginning, we kind of know what the thoughts are from the author. Yeah, thank you for sharing that because I think that's super important, especially I'm not an author, don't plan to be one ever, but <laughs> I think because they're so passionate about their work, they think that they are the expert in all things their book. And like they are the expert in their book, the story and the characters and all of that stuff. But like, unless you've been spending the last 10 years designing books, you don't know what's good in book design. Like neither do I, I would never claim to. So it's just best, I think, to just let the expert do what they're an expert in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving to the next question. What is one thing you wish you knew about publishing and or your role before you started working in the industry? You will make no money for a while and it will suck for a while. I think that goes across the board for, I mean, things are changing, but I think that goes across the board for a lot of people in publishing. You start out in a salary that is usually on the verge of unlivable in New York City. I, I think that you don't realize when you're going in. Like I thought, oh, of course I can live on $34,000 a year because before I was making $0 a year. So $34,000 sounds like a ton of money, but it is actually poverty levels and it will suck. I mean, I'm, I'm making more than double that now and I've been working for five years and it took me a really long time to get to the place where I didn't feel like I had to script and save every little piece. And it's really hard to give advice to people to be like, yeah, of course you should come into this industry because the reality is it's just not feasible for a lot of people to be able to live like that. And of course, so many of the higher ups that you work with or just people that you're working with just have really rich parents and they have privilege. And of course, I mean, I also, you know, have privileges that allow me to be able to, to get to this place in my career, but it can be really hard sometimes when you're making such little money and the higher ups are making so much more but then they also complain about their salaries because they're also not making what they're worth for me I was very lucky that when I was interning and when I was I was a student I was in the dorms and in an apartment so like I didn't have rent when I was interning because I was in a dorm and it was paid for through scholarship and through my parents and so that allowed me to make the I think when I was an intern I was making $11 an hour so I just used that money to be able to buy groceries or whatever. But it is really hard. So I did wish that I knew that. The other thing I wish I knew, not to get too dark about it, but sometimes you will have to do with really terrible sexism, ageism, and racism. It might happen only once or twice. It Honestly, it hasn't, it hasn't been like a constant thing for me that I've experienced, but it just Publishing is just an old industry that's slowly, slowly updating itself. And there just are things sometimes that you're going to come across that are extremely unfair. 
and you'll feel so bad. (laughs) And that just will happen, unfortunately. And it might happen a lot and you might have to leave the industry. And I know plenty of people who have left because of things like that. But I think at the end of the day, unfortunately, America is like that. And you will probably find that in almost every job. And at least here in publishing, a lot of the times you have places where you can speak up and you can like work toward change. And I think that's really special and great. I haven't left because of things like that, but I have had things happen to me that kind of sucked before. So that sucks. Sorry (laughs) to bring it down. Bring my mood down. No, I think that's so important to tell because I think... Part of the reason I was hesitant about creating this podcast is because I am so enthusiastic about publishing that I'm like, yes, everyone joined publishing. But also the truth of the matter is you get paid nothing and it's a very archaic industry. Like I am a cis white man, but I've also experienced homophobia at work on occasion. And like to your face, sometimes you're like, how are people so insane? But I truly think that it really does happen everywhere. And it's just like it happens everywhere. And at least in publishing, we can feel like we're doing some good, you know? Yeah, especially like when you worked in kids, I work in kids. The fact that we're creating books for children to help them develop is such a rewarding thing. So that alone helps me (laughs) deal with because like, again, I deal with next to nothing. I am a white man in publishing. Like there are no (laughs) issues for me, really. But the homophobia I have experienced has been few and far between, but it has been impactful. But anyway, yeah, I think it's so important that we're honest about this kind of stuff because it is a reality of this industry. Like you're going to experience something unless, again, you are a cis het white man. Like you're going to experience some discrimination in this industry. It's just kind of an inevitability. And as long as you're prepared for it, I think it's much easier to deal with than if you're just completely blindsided by it. So definitely thank you for sharing that. I think that's super valuable for people to hear. Yeah. And like I said, I do not fault anybody who leaves this industry for things like that happening. I mean, we see it all the time, but I think it's really important to have people that you can turn to when things like that happen. And like I said, I've had so many amazing mentors, so many people that I feel that I can reach out to people. Well, a really important thing in publishing is coworkers that you can bitch to. And just when you need to say, oh my God, I can't believe this has happened to me in a meeting to my face. People that you can just text about that, not on your work, not on Teams or Google chat. (laughs) And it's just really great because publishing, I think, just really fosters really great communities of people, especially at the lower levels, because it does create like we're all in this together type of thing because we are. (laughs) And it's hard sometimes. But yeah, I don't want to like it's hard because you do want to to tell people like, yeah, this is a really amazing industry. And like I said, I love my job. I love my projects. But there are downsides to every job. And unfortunately, the downsides to this job is you won't make a lot of money and it will be really hard sometimes to deal with bad things. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. OK, <laughs> now, perfect, perfect segue, though. If you had the power, like if some publishing overlord came to you and said, Cassie, for one day, you can change anything about this industry. What changes would you make? OK, well, first of all, I would like to say that I hope someday that I do have the power that <laughs> um, I have always had a goal with some other people would be to have my own imprint or to be the creative director at an imprint or even higher than that to switch into some you know upper level thing where I feel like I can affect positive change in this industry I'm really passionate about the industry and passionate about making it better in the ways that I can of course right now you know I'm a designer level I don't have a ton of power like I said before but I do hope that one day I, I do have the ability to make changes like this that I want to make I think that the problems in publishing as many of them as they are, they are very easy. And I think there are many things that we could do to solve them, which would be higher salaries, remote working. I don't 
think, I mean, it's great at Penguin. We're allowed to remote work forever if we want, but I just simply do not understand why the other companies have not instituted that. I think it's actually ridiculous. And then, yeah, salaries, I think, would solve so many of the problems because another big problem is that obviously publishing is very, very white. I think it's like 70% or something white or like even more than that. I mean, depending on what department you're in, like it's honestly shocking, especially the fact that we're in New York and New York is not a majority white New York City. I mean, it's just shocking. And, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to the salaries because a lot of, you know, people... POC, they can't afford to live on these really low salaries, so they're discouraged from working in the industry. So if we had higher salaries, it would not only solve problems of us being poor, it would solve the problems of people just being able to have wider access. And of course, with remote work too, that gives us access to other parts of the country from hiring people who, you know, are in rural America or wherever, just people who don't, who we wouldn't normally have access to this industry. And that creates diversity of thought and diversity of opinions within the company itself, which then, you know, leads to the books becoming more diverse and yada, yada, yada. You know, it's been said before. I don't think I'm saying anything new here, but a little more fun one that I love to throw out is that I don't think that editorial assistants should have as much administrative duties that they do. And I know that has also been said a million times, but we should have dedicated admin assistants and then editorial assistants can concentrate on learning how to be editors instead of learning how to cater to the whims of their bosses and how to rotate PDFs and how to print out things. <laughs> we should have people for that. One more really interesting thing. I, I wish I remember the name of the person whose Twitter thread I just saw, but I saw a really interesting Twitter thread the other day about why it was really beneficial to companies and to design departments to have illustrators in-house. And I just thought to myself, wow, instead of me having to go hunt down and like draw a little doodly-doo on my iPad, how amazing would it be if we had an illustrator who was in-house in the design department who I could ask to illustrate this certain thing so that we didn't have to be hiring outside people to do 37 different rounds. I just think that, yeah, I just saw that the other day and I was like, wow, that would actually be incredible to have in the design department someone to do, you know, illustrations sort of on the fly for covers instead of having to decide in a more fixed way that you want it to be photographic versus illustrated, that kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's a, I didn't even think about that as an option. And that's such a great idea. And I have to say, everything that you suggested changing has come up with other interviews. So I think this is just, unfortunately, an industry-wide belief that just no one has the power to make the change, unfortunately. At least the people that are talking about this maybe wouldn't have the power because a lot of us are earlier in our careers. But yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. We just need more money, really. <laughs> yeah, really, we just need more money. The other thing I don't, I really love, well, I work at Penguin Random House, I said on the Random House side. And I do really love working there and I really love the company. But one thing I've noticed after working there for the past year and a half is that Penguin Random House is the publishing industry because they are so big and they have so, I mean, I don't remember the exact like market share that we control, but it is a lot. It is a big, big, big company. And coming from Macmillan, that was definitely a change because Macmillan is, is it the smallest one or the fourth? The, it's the smallest one. So I went from the smallest to the biggest. And sometimes I think to myself, Penguin Random House is the publishing industry. The things that they want to change, they they could change it, you know? And I hope that someday I have the power to influence changes like that at a very large scale because, I mean, and if not me, someone else who is definitely more qualified and could do those things. But I hope that we, the lower level people now, really enact bigger change in the future. 
Yeah, definitely. And I do have to say, we were just talking about this actually earlier this week because we were at Print and Bind and we were talking about this book that we wanted to increase the price on. And we were like, can we increase it to this price? And someone was like, no, we can't do that until Penguin starts increasing their books because they hold so much of the market share. We would be the only person selling this type of book at this price. And hypothetically speaking, it would just tank because no other books are that price. And so it's so I had never considered before, like, how much influence Penguin has as a company over the entire industry because of how much of the market that they control. So that's just such a fascinating <laughs> thing that I had never considered before. Yeah. And of course, I'm not in these crazy meetings and I'm not in, I mean, I just do my one little thing, but it is really interesting to me sometimes. I'm like, y'all could change it if you wanted to. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think this is, yes, this is the last question. What is the best advice that you've received so far in your career? I have two pieces of advice. One of them comes from my stepdad, who is not in publishing. He's, in fact, a businessman. If you ask me the title of his job, I actually could not tell you because it's he's a businessman. <laughs> but he really taught me from the very beginning to always negotiate your salary. And that is so important, especially when we're coming in with these really low salaries. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they'll tell you, actually, we can't do anything about it. But you always, always have to ask for more, whether it's a salary job or a freelance project. I work on a lot of freelance projects outside of my job for different publishing companies. I mean, I'm freelance at Macmillan now and I do stuff for Random House Kids, which is the kids part of Random House. And rarely do I accept a job without asking for at least like even if it's just a little bit to let them know, like, you know, I deserve more than what you're giving me. Rarely do I accept a project where I don't ask for at least like $500 more. And if I don't, I'll work on them in the, with the project. The next project I work on, I'll be like, because their last project went so well, I think you should give me $500 more, you know? And I always tell artists and everybody, and I know it's so scary. Like if I'm being honest, which I will be, I have cried before every salary negotiation. Like I, I'm like literally crying because I'm so stressed. And then I'll get on the phone with HR and I'll be like, I think I deserve this much money. You know, it's just, it's a stupid, stressful part of being a person in corporate America, but it must be done. You have to do it. So that is really good advice that I have received courtesy of my businessman stepdad, who is very accustomed to those kinds of things. And the other piece of advice, I guess it's not really advice so much as it is a thing that I come back to as like a frame of reference, which is that at the end of the day, our jobs are just not that serious. We are not doctors. We are not out here with people's lives in our hands making like, you know, life-saving decisions. I mean, you could argue that we do, you know, do life-changing things. Sometimes, of course, our books do have the power to change lives. But at the end of the day, we have silly little jobs. And sometimes when I get frustrated at something, I just like to take a step back and remember, actually, this came from someone's mom who was like, she's a doctor. And she was like, why are you getting so frustrated about this? You're literally making a book. It's stupid. And so I like to take a step back sometimes and remind myself that we have silly jobs. And it just, it's not that serious. If something like when things go wrong, you have to remember, it's just, you're just one little piece of the big publishing plan and it's you know you're not saving lives out here i know that's one of my favorite pieces of advice that i've ever gotten because like especially at the beginning i would get so stressed like oh no i missed this thing like i was late on this and one of my supervisors was like eric we work in books the deadlines are important sure but like they're books it's fine you're no one's gonna lose their life over this no one's in jeopardy it's fine it's a book calm down <laughs> the best is when you make a mistake on like a really big print run <laughs> 
And you're like, did I make one tiny mistake or did I make one tiny mistake 50,000 times? And now it's a 50,000 mistake. But yeah, a lot of it, sometimes when I make mistakes, I'm like, this is team culpability, you know, like it's not just my eyes on the jacket, it's everybody's eyes. So if there's a mistake, there were a lot of people that had to approve that mistake. Yeah, that has helped me come to terms with mistakes I've made before. Okay, yeah, so those are all the questions. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Before I let you go, though, I do want to ask you two more quick questions. Number one, if you want people to follow you online, where can they find you? And then number two, shout out any upcoming projects, titles you're working on, anything that's coming out soon that you want people to look into. I am mostly active on Instagram. You can find me there at Casa Cassie, which is C-A-S-A-C-A-S-S-I-E. I do have a Twitter, though I mostly just lurk on there and read the drama. But if you want to follow me on there, it's C-A-S-A underscore C-A-S-S-I-E. And then all of my covers are up on my website, which unfortunately Cassie Gonzalez is dot com was taken. So it is Cassandra Gonzalez, which is C-A-S-A-N-D-R-A-G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S dot com, which is funny. Cassie Gonzalez is actually a writer. And, you know, I've kept tabs on her throughout her career, but she followed me on Twitter the other day. And I was like, that is so funny. Good on you, Cassie Gonzalez. Uh, but please relinquish your domain name to me. So that's where you can find me online. And then upcoming products to plug, I actually have my debut picture book is coming out in September, which I'm really excited about. I worked with La Libros and they do Spanish and English books for kids, mostly board books and picture books. So it's called J is for Hanukkah, but Hanukkah spelled the Spanish way, which is with a J. So it's J is for Januka. And it is, get ready for this, it is a <laughs> Spanish and English. So both languages on each page. Spanish and English alphabet book about Hanukkah. I do not know how the team found me. I think they literally just Googled Mexican Jewish illustrator books and found me <laughs> because I didn't have any previous picture book experience other than designing them. But I'm really proud of it and I'm really excited. And I think it's like $19.99 and you should pre-order it from wherever. BNN, Amazon, stuff everywhere. So please buy that. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Are there any other books that you're working on in your job that you're excited about? I had two books that came out just this week that I designed, which were some of the first books that I designed when I started working at Random House. That is Brace for Impact, which is a memoir about roller derby and being queer by Gabe Montesanti. So I really recommend that one. And then Neruda on the Park by Clivis Natera. I'm literally recommending it to all my like my mom's book club, like everything. It's really, really good. That one's a novel. And so I'm really excited about those ones because they just came out. Yeah, that's so exciting. Okay. Yeah, everyone, please go to Cassie's website also because you post all of the covers that didn't make it. And that's so fascinating to me. Like, especially when you're learning about cover design, I think that seeing the actual cover compared to the covers that might have been is such a fascinating, like, way to consider, like, why, maybe why was this cover not the one chosen? Like, I just, I think there's so much to learn from that. So definitely go to Cassie's website, buy the book, J is for Hanukkah. And yeah, follow Cassie everywhere on the internet. Um, thank you so much, Cassie, for taking the time. I really appreciate getting to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I think it's going to be a really good resource for people. And I'm really happy that you stepped up to do it. Thank you. Okay, have a good day. <laughs> thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Slush. 
Please visit slushpod.com where you'll find episode transcripts, free resources, and forms to submit questions and feedback. You can also follow Slush on Twitter at SlushPod, and if you are so inclined, please rate and review the podcast. Slush is hosted and produced by Eric Harden. Slush's logo was designed by Shelby Pack, and its theme music comes from the song Good Luck Charm by Olive Music. Any views expressed on the podcast are personal and do not reflect the opinions or interests of the hosts or guests' employers. Thank you again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.